and welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Devorah Goldman. And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It is published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. In each podcast, Dan and I interview the authors of one of the essays published in our journal. Today, we're excited to be talking with Phil Jeffrey, an assistant editor at the Washington Free Beacon. We'll be talking with Phil about his excellent essay titled, A Cultural Agenda for Our Time, from our summer 2019 issue. In this piece, Phil discusses the history of the American government's support for culture and the arts, and suggests some proposals for how it might develop a national culture policy suited to our particular time and circumstances. So to start off, Phil, you write in your essay that it's, quote, far from common knowledge that the United States ever had a cultural policy, much less that it currently has one. What do you mean by that? And how did you become interested in the study of U.S. cultural policy? So there are a lot of other countries that have sort of ministries of culture, right? Whether that exists for straight up propaganda purposes or in free societies, Western Europe and elsewhere, government supports museums, education, and sort of has an idea of how it wants to present itself to the world and to its own citizens. And it's unclear today whether we've ever had something like that. The fact is that We have, as I discuss in this essay, and as I'm sure we'll get into. But there's a reason that it's unclear that we do have a culture policy, in part because the culture policy that we have was tailored for a certain historical moment, and that historical moment has now passed. But also that at the time, the culture policy that we put together was kind of put together with the intention that it not look like we have a culture policy. As for the question of how I got interested, sort of come together through different things that I've read. I'm, I've been interested in American literature, I guess, which is obviously a broad, very broad topic. But there was a particular moment, I mean, really a few decades where almost everybody who was big and active on the American literary scene or artistic scene more broadly had engaged with government programs at some point or another, most notably the New Deal, the Works Progress Administration. And a lot of the things that I read that I was sort of interested in as a, hey, there's this piece of American modernist literature are sort of connected tangentially in different ways to either direct government support or people who had been at some point, their, their, their careers had been furthered or even started by their engagement with government programs. Yeah. And as you point out, it can affect us in ways we don't always realize because many people don't realize we have a culture policy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, on on that note, people don't really think about the fact that a lot of government buildings have sculptures in front of them. Those sculptures are supposed to add something to your experience of of viewing these buildings. They're supposed to communicate something about where they are. I mean, here in D.C., we, of course, have the National Mall and it's sort of very clear what a lot of the buildings there are supposed to evoke, right? It's this neoclassical style. It's the sort of small R Republican thousands of years old tradition. But there are also a lot of government buildings in a lot of other places, and also here in D.C., that perhaps don't look as ornate. But it's interesting to remember sometimes that whenever you see a government building, a sculpture in front of it, people made specific choices for those things to look that way. And they wanted to communicate something by the fact that that's there and it looks that way. You particularly focused on two poets in your piece, T.S. Eliot and William Carlos Williams. You open your essay by noting that Williams and Eliot had long represented two oppositional strains in American poetry. So why don't you tell us a bit about those two figures and what they represent? Sure. So as with a lot of places around the world, especially in what we refer to as the capital W West, the First World War was a big sort of rupture point for American arts and letters. Because the fighting was not happening in America, because America didn't undergo just the complete destructive flattening of so many things that much of Western Europe did. Instead, America was mostly affected by who left for the war and who stayed. And after the war, who stayed overseas and who came back. And so this this sort of European sense of despair was something that Americans kind of had to grapple with, sometimes by proxy and sometimes by merit of the fact that, again, a lot of them went over to Europe for the war and a lot of them stayed. 
Now, Eliot and Williams, along with a lot of others, had a sense that not just because of the First World War, but because of sort of all that the war had proved about the modern world, about sort of the inheritance of the Enlightenment and, and 19th century rationalism and all that, had demonstrated that the roots people had were pretty shallow, either because they'd just been destroyed in the First World War, or because they themselves personally had, again, been uprooted and went overseas, went to a city for factory jobs, whatever. But also because America was a young nation. America was a pretty pluralistic society in the sense that it had a lot of different cultural heritages and traditions mixing around in it. It was no longer clear necessarily that the sort of genteel Victorian waspy heritage of, of New England was necessarily going to set the tone for all of America. There's a growing sense of obviously what the immigrant populations in different cities contributed, especially as cities became bigger and, and more important in American life broadly. And so this, this problem of rootlessness, both in America and for a lot of people in, in modern Western Europe, was something that Eliot and Williams, along with almost everybody else who was writing and, and making art at the time, sort of had to grapple with. Eliot, of course, grew up in St. Louis, not necessarily a small town, but he was one of these people who, because of his artistic interests, because of the war, because of where centers of cultural influence were, moved around. And he, of course, expatriated himself famously to the UK and sort of took on this very British personality. He dove into this longer tradition than, frankly, that, than America could supply. And of course, all of his poetry is just stuffed with references and you have to know some Chaucer and you have to know some Shakespeare and you have to know... Uh, reading The Wasteland is... There's a lot of European references in there that an American audience might not be familiar with. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the Wasteland is a course in <laughs> British and broadly European traditions, and sometimes it requires a course in British and broadly European traditions just to understand what, what's being said. But of course, The Wasteland is, is all about this, this rupture brought on by modern life. It was written only a few years after the First World War and is absolutely earth-shattering for a lot of, a lot of poets. I mean... William Carlos Williams wrote about it. Malcolm Cowley wrote about just how devastating this poem mm -hmm. was. Because for a lot of young artists and writers at the time, you know, you're trying to get your footing in, in the world. You're trying to find things to write about. And along comes this great world historical genius who says, it's all destroyed. There's not much left that we can say. We have to deal with the fact that things are bad. Things have been destroyed and it's unclear how to move forward from that. More fatalistic in that sense. Yeah. The great, again, rupture has already happened. And in some ways, it's the most we can do to sort of lament that. Williams, a small town New Jersey doctor, he was slightly older than a lot of the people in the last generation. He wasn't one of the young men drafted as a teenager to go over to the trenches. I mean, he already had a, a professional career as a doctor before he started writing poetry. He went to the University of Pennsylvania and, and sort of through that and, and through just mutual acquaintances, got to know Ezra Pound and a lot of people in, in that circle. Pound, of course, close with Eliot, Pound an expatriate. But unlike Eliot, he had a very strong sense of himself specifically as an American. Later on in his, his career, I mean, later on meaning after the 19-teens, he wrote a lot of essays and even a couple of books just sort of surveying American history and the pieces of American history that he thought were sort of formative for the national character. Like Eliot, again, he recognized the problem of rootlessness in the modern world generally, but specifically in America. And with what he wrote about American history, he tried to point to, okay, what's already here? What sort of sensibility have we had since the founding, even before that, that inform how Americans generally see themselves in the world and how I as a poet in particular can see myself and the world. And the way that he saw himself in the world was through a keen attention to detail and sort of local experience. If you know one poem by William Carlos Williams, there's a good chance you know The Red Wheelbarrow, which I imagine being on this podcast, it would behoove me to read at least a little bit Go of ahead, poetry. Please. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow, glazed with rainwater, beside the white chickens, 
That's it. At one level, yeah, you can say, like, that's it. Exactly. That's, I mean, that's the point. So much depends on... on It's like local on a farm kind of thing, a pastoral kind of... See, you're already, I mean, you chuckle, but you're you're already drawing so much just out of that, right? I mean, so much depends. It is. And the, yeah, the richness of particular things that you can experience in the world. Again, just the the attention to detail and not not needing to connect it to a long tradition because one may not really exist. But the way you get one to exist is to start from the grassroots level. Just start with what's around, what's present. I mean, Americans have sort of always been caricatured, and this is to a large extent true, as a sort of practical materialistic people. And again, there's there's truth to that. But Really, the, the promise inherent in that characteristic is that we can be pretty good at seeing the universal and seeing the transcendent through particular details. That was a great phrase from your piece. We really enjoyed that part of it. Oh, thank yeah. you. It's true. I mean, you, you see it in a lot of the greatest things that Americans have written. I mean, even just sort of the canonical things that you read in, in high school or middle school, right? An Emily Dickinson poems, very observational. Walt Whitman is, I mean, he's all about observing people and and all different aspects of american life and and he's not just the sort of romantic pastoral thing he's also talking about the nitty-gritty of urban new york and i mean just just to say i contain multitudes is just it's an insistence that you know i as a particular embodied being he's very embodied yes he talks about how much he loves the smell (laughs) of his armpits yeah. Be too much detail there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's easy to read him as as just this like narcissistic individualist, but he is he is trying to look through that to others and and bring others into his experience of the world and of himself. Melville, right? He, he takes the just experience of a whaling voyage, which is of course a pretty big and arduous thing, but it's it's a sort of grubby mercantile work and and he has a lot of chapters in Moby Dick where he's just describing whales and whaling and ship and going through all the different practical aspects of it, so as to be able to say there is infinitely more to this than can be broken down, expressed, and there's a lot sort of behind the curtain. Yeah. I would say even American children's authors like Ella Montgomery and Louisa May Alcott also sort of grab onto that, those small things and make them transcendent. Absolutely. I mean, again, if you've read one poem by William Carlos Williams, it's Probably the Red Wheelbarrow, and you probably read it as a child. Yeah. <laughs> or it's probably read to you as a child. Going back to Elliot for a moment, you talk about how he opened a new chapter in American culture policy in a November 1948 speech at the Library of Congress, or sponsored by the Library of Congress. And in that speech, he was somewhat critical of Edgar Allan Poe's approach to poetry, what you call his careless style over substance approach. So although Elliot lamented that modernist direction, he also felt that it would be the future of Western poetry. And you write that that was quite important. How so? So crucially, I think the what, what Eliot found significant about Poe was not Poe. What he found significant about Poe was that there were French authors who found something significant in Poe. Eliot's in this speech, he purports to not want to pass judgment on Poe, or at least not have that be the point of the speech. But he is very critical of of this one American that he talks about. He almost pokes fun at the one of the opening lines from The Raven about the saintly days of yore, talking about what does that even mean? Is the raven supposed to be saintly? What does days of yore, what is that? But what Eliot saw as Poe's significance for French symbolist poets, he names three, Baudelaire, Mallarmé, and, and Paul Valéry. In these, these sort of three poets representing sort of three generations of French poetry leading up to 1900, and well, sort of beyond it, Eliot sees a sort of movement from focusing on the subject of the poem to sort of the personality of the poet as this kind of oppositional figure to society, which is, at least he claims, which is what Baudelaire sort of saw Poe as, is he's Poe is this sort of dark and brooding artist standing apart from the optimism of the 19th century. And then later on, French poets start drawing different things out of Poe. They start, they start emphasizing more his images and his technique and, you know, say what you will about saintly days of yore, but it has a cadence to it and it helps create a sort of mood that the rest of the poem then works with. 
you can sort of see where this is going. It's, it's moving further away from a sort of literal reading of, of the poem or, or trying to read so as to learn something about the subject matter, such that by the time you get to, as you Paul Valery, it's the subject exists for the poem, not the poem for the subject. But it, it's all matter. about the technique but, and the style, not the subject. Yeah, it's about the technique. It's about the style. It's about just the artistic process of putting the poem together. And, and eventually it sort of reaches its zenith for Valerie as just the poem. The poem is what's important. And you can't even, to the point where you, it doesn't even make sense to say the poem is good art or even art, because art is this sort of other category that you're not really trying to say anything about. It's just you present the poem, take it sort of in itself. and. Eliot doesn't like this direction. He thinks that it, it, even at the time that he was giving a speech in 1948, he thought that it was already played out. It's this sort of a lot of the same pessimism that you run into in The Wasteland, but just that, yeah, we, we've kind of run out of things to say. But he saw it as the natural direction of things. Eliot was kind of stuck there, whereas Williams was very okay starting from square one, yeah, yeah. You, being a little bit barbarous. You note that he was disturbed by Eliot's speech and felt that the Library of Congress and the government were sanctioning the view that the French and not Americans would determine the future of Western poetry. Yeah, I mean, his back, Williams's background explains a lot of that. He, he was an American poet, and he didn't really feel a strong push to go somewhere else and be a different kind of poet. The speech was given in 1948. This is 30 years after the end of the First World War. Eliot had been in Europe, writing more or less continuously since then. Williams had been writing more or less continuously since then. This beef had been going on for some time. The Library of Congress giving Eliot a stage to, I mean, to speak in the first place, but also, I think, to speak on this subject in this way, while inviting Williams and Charles Olson and, and all these different people who were from both sides of it, one might be justified in thinking, yeah, that's a very clear statement in favor of one side over the other. And that's certainly how Williams took it. And from then on, he and a lot of the poets he was close to sort of saw themselves more as kind of oppositional. I mean, there's always a a sort of anti-authority streak in in Williams from the beginning, but perhaps the most well-known sort of immediate successors to Williams' tradition are the beat poets. William Carlos Williams was pretty close to Allen Ginsberg and and a lot of the beats, and and that's kind of where the this kind of Whitman-esque tradition turns directly sort of countercultural and and anti-authoritarian. Mm-hmm. And so Williams has his own kind of speech, a sort of response to Eliot. The poem is a field of action. And it seems like it, what you read in the piece that he's saying that Americans shouldn't just sit back and kind of let poetry go in this European direction. We can have some agency here, make our own type of poetry. And you have a great quote here. I think it's from his speech make the mass in which some other later Eliot will dig, kind of having this cultural soil to have later developments in yeah. culture, but from an American local national perspective. Just talk a bit about how his vision is different than Eliot's. Sure. I mean, first of all, I, I love how literally dirty and grubby it, it, <laughs> the image is. I think, I think Williams is not so much suggesting or prescribing a different direction for poetry. I mean, he's saying this stuff has, is already going on. He's already doing the work. Poets around him are already doing the work. People beyond poetry are, are doing the work of, of building an American tradition. I mean, of course, all the great masters, all the great works of, again, the, the capital W West are, are available. They're things that you can go to a library and read. They're things that you can draw on. And they came from somewhere. All those traditions had their own sort of founding fathers. They had people, they had a, a lot of very narrow and provincial and even bad art before the sort of great things that we think of as masterpieces came along. And I think that was sort of Williams's expectation was that that process had already begun in America, which is why he returns to the topic of American history. He just sort of insists that there's something underway. It's happening and it's a noble enterprise worth contributing to. And you talk about some of the concrete steps that the government took to establish that kind of tradition. You said that the U.S. government would adopt Eliot's cosmopolitan approach to a national culture policy during the Cold War, and that agencies like the State Department and the CIA cared less about the content of American art and more about promoting Western values like individualism, freedom, pluralism, and dissent to contrast with Soviet communism. So how did these agencies initially go about this? Yeah, I think you can observe a lot 
just based on which parts of the government were promoting the project of American culture broadly. Because at first, it was the State Department and the CIA. In part, this is, it reflects, I think, a pretty important point that I, I think is a good thing, which is to say that American culture generally is of great public interest. And the parts of the government that we think of as particularly important and necessary, yeah, to, to some extent, they're, I mean, they're grappling with, on some level, cultural questions and, and moral questions and the question of what kind of people are we and, and how do we want to present ourselves is necessarily something that's important to foreign policy and a whole lot of other things. But again, in, in this particular moment, that is to say, let's say 1948 to 1965, it's the State Department and the CIA. And the picture of American culture that they wanted to promote was, and this is quoting historian Michael Kamen, individualism, freedom, pluralism, and dissent, which, again, going back to Whitman and the, the sort of tradition that, that he sparked and, and was a part of, individualism is certainly there, but it's not the whole thing. Personal freedom is there, but it's not the whole thing. There's also an importance of observing others and identifying with others and wanting to be part of, of something bigger. And I, I think, you know, you see this in, in Melville too, where it starts off, call me Ishmael, and it's all told from this one person's perspective. But, his, but Ishmael's goal in this whaling voyage is to sort of absorb himself into the people around him, possibly literally with Queequeg, but also absorb himself into just the world and the experience of the whaling voyage. He kind of disappears. He does succeed in sort of disappearing into other people to the point where he's able to tell us their thoughts directly, which is not to deny that individualism, freedom, pluralism, and dissent are part of the American tradition. Obviously, they are. And the fact that they are part of the American tradition is what made it possible for the United States to present itself as the champion of cultural freedom and individual expression from 1945 onward. And of course, because of geopolitical reasons, that was very important. The struggle was against a totalitarian power that was not about individualism, freedom, pluralism, and dissent, and had much more overt and direct culture policies that very explicitly wanted to shape what it was that people saw, what people believed. And the United States, I think, very rightly wanted to oppose that and wanted to present itself as different from that. Well, you also write that the individualist cultural agenda went too far in some ways and created this sort of art for art's sake movement. Would you talk about that and why that was a problem for some people? Art for art's sake was kind of the reigning doctrine in the mid-20th century. And that just so happened to be very well connected to American geopolitical priorities, to the point where the State Department bought up several dozen pieces of contemporary painting and sent them on a tour around Eastern Europe. And to the point where the CIA was funding the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which brought together rather a, a lot of thinkers, philosophers, and, and, and artists and poets from both sides of the Atlantic. And there was a lot of good that those programs did in, in terms of just fostering arts and criticism and interesting thinking. I mean, kind of as I said from the beginning, you know, if you read American literature from a certain time period, let's say the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and run into a lot of people who were involved in some way in a, in a New Deal program. And similarly, a lot of great intellectuals and philosophers and artists from a few decades later, a lot of them were involved in the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And I, I don't want to begrudge that in the slightest. All that being said, this was a very externally oriented form of, of, of modernism. And even before the end of the Cold War, there were sort of hints, let's say, that domestically that tradition of modernism was not something that a lot of Americans cared to engage with or even really could engage with. We were talking about the CIA before funding art projects, so eventually they kind of get some negative press coverage. And there's some calls to create an actual federal agency that kind of openly rather than covertly mm -hmm. supporting cultural freedom and freedom of expression. So you get uh, the founding of the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities in 1965. But then you write that they also, they claim that they didn't really have an approach. They were, they were hands up, you know, we're, we're not influencing what type of art, we just want to promote art. But you say that's really a policy in itself. Laissez-faire is a policy in itself. And, and again, sort of continuing this idea of arts for art's sake. And as you said, domestic Americans didn't always like that that much. But talk a little bit about how once we actually had federal agencies supporting it, still kind of had a similar policy. One of the things I mentioned earlier is that 
very often, especially liberal American observers of, of, of politics and culture, will look to a lot of the ministries of culture in Europe and elsewhere and say, why don't we have something like that? One of the first people to say, why don't we have something like that? And then proceed to be pretty influential about it was Arthur Schlesinger, who was, of course, pretty involved in the JFK administration. And in 1960, even as State Department's, the the State Department's jazz concerts and the CIA's funding for the Congress of uh, Cultural Freedom was still going on, Schlesinger was saying, we should have something that's more sort of centralized and coherent to engage experts on the arts and promote the arts in general and American sort of cultural freedom in particular. Now, that process was sort of, as you suggested, Dan, kind of sped along by the New York Times in 1966, kind of telling the world that, yes, indeed, the CIA did fund the Congress of Cultural Freedom, which is not a good look when you're trying to oppose a, a regime. It's American propaganda. Well, yeah. And that's, that's the problem. And that's sort of the paradox is you're trying to present a single, coherent, united cultural vision of what the United States is to the world. But the content of that vision maybe conflicts with it because the content of that vision has to be about artistic autonomy, individual expression, not being influenced by political forces. And so this was, this was a problem. Schlesinger didn't necessarily see it as a problem. His mindset was, look, just like let artists and experts on art run it. As long as you don't have direct political influence and, and as long as you don't have the preferences of people who don't know what they're talking about presented as the American cultural vision, you're fine. But of course, as is suggested throughout the piece, the hands-off approach is exactly what the federal government was, that's the picture it was trying to paint, so to speak. It's trying to create propaganda that's all about not being propagandistic. And that was a positive choice. They could have made other choices. I think it was the right choice for the time, or at least an appropriate one. But as this, this kind of paradox suggests, there's, I mean, there's more than one way to be hands-off. One way to be hands-off is just don't touch it, don't do anything, literally get the CIA out of it, get the State Department out of it, and whatever picture of American culture results, that's what it is. But the route that the Lyndon Johnson administration chose was to create these agencies that put this particular face on America and the culture it produced. Could you give some examples of the sorts of projects that Americans did object to during the Cold War? Yeah, so I, I brought up the weird modernist sculptures that you're likely yeah. to see in front of a lot of government buildings. People have pretty much always thought that they were weird, or at least unreadable, incoherent, not really reflective of anything. And that's, that's sort of unfair. Again, abstract art is trying to say something, if something abstract. And instead of engaging, perhaps as the artist intended, with these pieces as objects of contemplation or ways to think about abstract concepts, people generally rebelled against the installation of of these statues. And and this is true in urban America as well as relatively rural America. There are a couple of examples I I mentioned. You mentioned Guy Dill's sculpture, Hoedown. Yeah, Hoedown in, in South Dakota, that got very negative reactions. I mean, it's it's sort of easy to imagine a relatively small town community, a lot of people who actually potentially farm, people who actually have some sense of what life is like on the Great Plains, some sense of the seasons and the soil and tangible things. Seeing this sculpture that is sort of supposed to evoke that stuff in this broad, abstract way. And it was, it was four leaning rectangles. Four leaning rectangles that aren't quite parallel, and each one has a, a log through it. Whether that evokes the seasons or the earth or tilling the soil, it's up to your interpretation, okay. I suppose. But it certainly did not evoke that for... The residents. Uh, the there. residents. You're there. trying to tap into that tradition, but they're right. not. They can't even understand. Yeah, I think a an even more egregious and clear example of that is another one that I mentioned: Tilted Arc, installed 1981 in Manhattan. This is probably something that anybody who who has ever thought about urban planning would see as an obvious problem. But the uh, the context for this is that there's basically this plaza downtown Manhattan. Because it's downtown Manhattan, a lot of foot traffic, a lot of people sort of walking across it, and 
nice to have sort of open space. You don't necessarily have to have skyscrapers blocking out the sun everywhere. You can, again, have a, have a public space, have this sort of open area that people traverse, and that's how people used it. Now, whoever made the decision to install a tilted arc apparently looked at that and said, something should go there. <laughs> and what they put there was, it looks like a, a, what they installed there was essentially a wall, a curved wall right in the middle of this plaza, essentially, where all of the foot traffic used to go. And of course, this is highly disruptive to the people who actually live there, work there, use that space. And even if sort of aesthetically from a distance, it looked like something that could fit there, it looked like something that used the, the space per se well and artistically, it was quite counter to how people actually lived there and used the space. And so there were obviously a lot of opposition to these projects during the Cold War. Now we move after the Cold War. We're no longer fighting the Soviets. It doesn't seem like there's as much of a purpose of promoting individualism, freedom of expression. And then there are some projects that Americans get really upset about. Specifically, I mean, you think about something like Andre Serrano, if I'm saying his name right, mm -hmm. a crucifix in urine. A lot of people are upset about that. So then you've got this kind of domestic culture war, two sides, one side saying, why are we even funding arts? Why is government involved in this? The other side saying, well, no, we need to keep doing this art for art's sake. You know, we just need to promote freedom of expression. That's what art's all about. You say that's, that's kind of a false choice. There's, there's another way to look at government support of the arts. Can you talk a little bit about how it shifted after the Cold War and then going forward from that? Yeah, it, it's remarkable how soon after the Cold War ended, these culture wars started. Basically, the, the late 80s and into the 90s is when a lot of these big public disputes over the National Endowment for the Arts started up. And one thing that both sides of that debate sort of held in common, a common sort of assumption that they shared was that the National Endowment for the Arts, the artists that it represented, the artists that it funded, were the sort of natural development of what the art world was and was, in a sense, always going to be. It's this sort of T.S. Eliot sense of, yeah, I may not like it, but this is what the art world is, and to reject it would just be barbarism. Again, both sides of the culture wars of the late 80s and 90s kind of accepted this as a basic premise. One side saying, you know, you may not like it, but this is what art is, and there's a, a public interest in promoting the arts. And so you may not like it, but it's what you got to promote. And the other side says, this is what art is. Why are we funding this? And what they both missed is that that wasn't necessarily what the arts, at least the arts in America, always were or, or had to be. I don't want to insinuate that these were necessarily bad art pieces. Andre Serrano's work is, it's pretty interesting. I mean, the, the point of, maybe one point of this particular piece and, and a lot of other photographs that he did around the same time that also involved a lot of bodily fluids interacting with or taking the shape of religious or otherwise meaningful objects. I mean, you, you can see both how that is related to a, that particular tradition of, of modernism where the artist's technique, the artist's basically bodily interaction with the medium and, right. and the subject of the art is, is central. But you can also see how it's connected maybe to the more Whitman-esque American tradition. I mean, again, Whitman has that one line about the smell of his own armpits. But the possibility of, of experiencing and even honoring these meaningful, often religious objects by sort of looking at them through this kind of gross bodily <laughs> fluids and functions, you can see how that's inheriting both both traditions. But of course, the, the, you could also just read it as, yeah, the kind of narcissistic and the artist presenting himself as, as the centerpiece of the art and as better than or degrading even the religious or, or other sort of meaningful objects that he's, he's presenting. So I think it's not surprising that these particular pieces were what caused a lot of public outcry. I probably would not have enjoyed seeing them the first time either, even if I on some level, I guess, possibly get what he was going for. But yeah, both sides of the culture wars over Serrano and, and Robert Mapplethorpe's photography 
kind of accepted this this straightforward identification between this government agency and sort of the, the picture it meant to present of American culture and American public art and sort of natural development of the arts and public culture. So you mentioned that, you know, the two alternatives we're talking about, either no government funding of the arts at all or a laissez-faire approach that promotes modernism and individualism are not the only options for U.S. culture policy. So you talk about the Works Progress Administration, which, of course, is a New Deal agency designed for a particular historical moment that was specifically devoted to supporting certain types of art projects, especially ones that would benefit hard-hit rural areas. So how was the WPA different from U.S. culture policy during the Cold War? Well, it was similar to U.S. culture policy during the Cold War insofar as the federal government identified particular cultural problems, often with the help of, of intellectuals and critics like Arthur Schlesinger did in, in the 1960s. Then the government tailored these agencies to respond in a particular way. Now, the WPA obviously held a very different view of not just what types of culture to promote, but even just what the arts and culture are different, that is, from the, the National Endowment for the Arts and subsequent sort of Cold War era agencies. The WPA treated the arts basically like a form of infrastructure, like physical infrastructure projects, you know, building bridges and roads and putting up telephone lines and whatever, fostering movement, exchange, communication, empowering rural areas, quite literally, case of Tennessee Valley Authority. It's sort of analogs of those functions of infrastructure that the WPA was trying to promote through more directly artistic initiatives. You mentioned some interesting things that the WPA did, like the Slave Narrative Collection, which collected oral histories from the last living generation of former slaves. Obviously, that was a pretty time-specific project. Sure. And I think that's kind of the point. Time-specific, but also sort of location-specific. Instead of trying to put a face on American culture broadly for the world broadly, the WPA picked out local projects. Again, there's another similarity to infrastructure, right? Even if particular projects are interconnected to the nation as a whole and have these broader secondary effects, the point of it is to be local, to pick out a particular thing that could use doing and to do it. So yeah, the, the slave narrative collection is not just one of the most famous, but one of the most sort of fruitful things that came out of the, the WPA because historians now have recordings of the last generation of former slaves telling their stories and, and just talking about life from a time that few people in the 1930s remembered and obviously nobody directly remembers today. The, the WPA also did things like sending out-of-work writers to different monuments, historic sites, national parks, and just writing brochures, writing informational literature to point out why is this place important? Again, something very location-specific. And even if its sort of primary purpose is to sort of elevate this particular experience that someone might have at this location, it can also have broader effects on how you see America, how you see our national history and, and national character. And then the WPA was also pretty important in starting a lot of a lot of young artist careers. Orson Welles, for instance, before he made Citizen Kane, before he presented the, the War of the Worlds on radio, he was fairly well known for directing a production of Macbeth, known as Voodoo Macbeth, where <laughs> the, WPA, well, the WPA sent him to Harlem and had him put on a production of Macbeth with just local actors. Chose to set it in Haiti around the revolutionary period, and which... which puts an interesting spin on, on the witches, right? It, it makes it right. more plausible, perhaps, that Macbeth would go to witches for advice. And he also directed a production of Julius Caesar that oh, also put his name sort of on the map mm -hmm. that was set not quite in Nazi Germany, but wink, wink, in Nazi Germany. Interesting. And, and he was able to use that to comment on what was going on. And, and of course, that's even even though it is taking this this timeless piece of art, it's bringing it into this particular historical moment, and it's made for the people at the time. And you know, looking back, more powerful through the the lens of the particular things that are going on. Which is not to say that everybody loved the WPA. The WPA was out was without criticism. A lot of the 
the writers and artists, actors, directors that it, it funded were pretty far to the left of center. Many of them at the time or later on joined the Communist Party, which in the context of the time sort of makes sense if, if the point is to go to rural areas and focus on the poorest of the poor and focus on the people at the lowest rung of society during one of, yeah. yeah, essentially. And uh, yeah, basically observing the lowest rung of society at American capitalism's lowest point. You could see how people would get some proletarian sympathies. And, but a lot of, of careers were launched and a lot of people sort of, regardless of, of where you fall in the political spectrum, it's hard to avoid the contributions that a lot of people were able to make through this particular set of programs. Mm-hmm. Sure. Using the WPA as an example. So that was, you know, that seemed to work for, we're talking about New Deal era, pre-World War II. And then we have the Cold War cultural policy about promoting freedom of expression. And then you suggest that's maybe not the right policy for today. So let's talk a little bit about some of the proposals you have at the end of your piece to have a cultural policy particularly suited to today's circumstances. A few things with that. You mentioned that only 13% of NEA activities occurred in rural communities, so more projects in rural communities. You talk about oral histories, like you mentioned, the, the Slave Narrative Project and the WPA. You talk about local papers, like maybe even the government funding local papers. Talk about how those ideas could have a, a cultural policy that's particularly good for this point in time in American history. A lot of the things that I bring up, including getting oral histories from the generation of people who, who fought in the Second World War and sort of local arts initiatives, a lot of these things happen in the private sector. And there's a lot of great work being done. And, you know, the, the, the fact that the NEA sends even 13% of its, its projects and funding to rural areas is an active choice made by, made by people. And there are sort of hints that this is a direction that things can go towards sort of smaller scale, rural, in a different direction than it's been headed in. You mentioned that the art world in some ways coexists with and for the Hamptons. Yeah. I mean, what do you, what do you think of when somebody says performance art? Where do you think art installations happen when somebody says, oh, there's a new art installation? There's a reason that you think that the rich and powerful, the coastal elites who have access to the art world, in large part, that's just because that's where resources are. That's where audiences with the leisure time to get into these kind of things happens, where art training and art institution programs and, and, and education happens. But I, I think that fact not only shouldn't diminish, but provides reason for if we're going to have instruments of cultural policy on the federal level or state level, it's all the more reason to be directed sort of against the tide. Yeah, you, you have a nice phrase for the American tradition in art, which is the ability to see the transcendent and the familiar and the particular. We talking about earlier, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of what is particular and familiar, a lot of the content of people's real experiences in America is not represented in, in culture broadly. And, and of course, that's, I'm not the first to bring up that complaint. You get a lot of pushes in Hollywood and elsewhere for representation of different groups in movies, but, but it's not just a matter of whose lives do you present. It's also a matter of the details of life and what is the content of people's experience? What do we see in it? What do we see through it? And you can have all kinds of sort of surface level representation in all kinds of artistic media, but there's always going to be this sort of distance from the actual stuff of not just of life, but of the American tradition. So long as all of the cultural messaging and artifacts and things that are created are created in these particular contexts in this particular bubble. And as long as there aren't sort of lines of communication, again, it's going back to this idea of, of culture as infrastructure. And this is why I think the, the New Deal approach to culture policy is, is relevant is because in a lot of ways, what we have now, and everybody recognizes this, we have a breakdown in communication. We don't really have cultural exchange. We have one-way messaging about things. And we have a sense of sort of loss of particular allegiances and a loss of confidence in the future. And that, that sort of comes out in a lot of different ways, whether you're talking about the environment or China's going to overtake us or this, that, and the other thing, which are, you know, real concerns. But there's this sort of crisis of confidence, which is a domestic problem. It's a cultural problem. And if it can be solved, and I think this is Williams's basic insight, if 
you have a sense that there's been this rupture and a loss of confidence in the future. Do you think that the trends of the last century or, or of just the modern world are going in a direction that you think is catastrophic? The place where you can regain agency and build something of a future is the level of people's localized experience. So by, by refocusing on that local experience, the artists and perhaps the government could help reconnect the arts to the lives of most Americans. Yeah, I, I think those are one and the same thing, just because of the character of the American tradition. Again, as, as something that has always been very sort of observational about people, about details, about manners and, and rituals and the way of life. Again, very practically minded. That lends itself to being something that you can build from the ground up, mm -hmm. right? Even if you have ultimately transcendent things in view, you are still able to start from the smallest things. The and things work around you. Yeah. yeah. And as a final point, Phil, I don't know, I guess we haven't talked about this yet, but conservatives in particular have been ones to not really want to support any type of government funding. I know President Trump as well has in some of his budgets said we should just zero out funding for NEA, NEH. So kind of as a, as a final concluding thing here, why is it important for conservatives in particular to take up this vision or idea of supporting art, but also enhancing the local traditions and building that, again, that cultural soil, that mass mm -hmm. that can be built on later, building up from the ground up, as you said? Sure. There's a sort of paradox that I've struggled with myself being on the, the conservative, culturally conservative end of things, which is that we talk about cherishing our tradition. Now it's a little more fashionable to say, cherishing our, our, our national heritage, right? And a lot of sort of new nationalists right now. But the question stands, what is the content of our tradition? What is the content of our national culture and national character? I think there can oftentimes be a, the knee-jerk answer to that is often, our, our tradition is kind of just to be traditionalists, right? We, we want to be people who value tradition, but there are also things in Walt Whitman in the Transcendentalists in the Beat Poets that seem to push in a direction that conservatives don't really care for. And that's totally fair. Again, this is something that I've had to think about a lot myself. But I think where conservative values can meet that Whitman-esque tradition is in the attention to detail, to locality, to community, to resist the, the rush to dive into abstraction. So yeah, in, in, the, in the name of discovering, uncovering, or just building in the first place an American tradition, an American national culture that is connected to maybe even parts of the American tradition as it currently exists that we might not like, we need to be engaged with culture and, and not just say, okay, cult culture is sort of something apart from government, apart from sort of active choices that people make, it kind of emerges naturally. I think historically, that's not necessarily the case. I think culture happens because people make things. The fact that the things that Americans make as sort of cultural artifacts are very often connected to the material stuff of life is something that conservatives can work with. But I think that, yeah, the thing to remember is that there's always been this faith in American arts and letters that the transcendent is imminent somehow in mm -hmm. some ways in the lives that Americans can and do lead. So now we have a bit of an over-under component to the podcast where we will toss out some topics to you and you can tell us whether you think they're overrated or underrated. This is just okay. rapid yes, fire. Hope lightning around here. All right. We always conclude right with this. Okay. Oof. So I'm going to start off with actually the upcoming edition of T.S. Eliot's Cats, the live action. <laughs> wow. That's, I didn't even know that was coming. <laughs> Yikes. It's hard. I mean, it's hard to say whether that's over or underrated because everyone seems horrified by it, <laughs> myself included. Properly rated, maybe? Oh, probably properly rated. Okay. Just in If anybody there. thinks that that looks good, then it's definitely overrated. Okay. There's one person out there who doesn't get nightmares from that trailer. Gosh. Did anyone hear Sea Cats as a kid? I don't think I did. I went and I was absolutely horrified. <laughs> that was probably why I said <laughs> There were these like giant humans dressed up as cats roaming the audience. Yeah. yeah. At least it's not CGI. Right. With the human faces. Yeah. It was, it was, it was pretty intense. Live, yeah. And then uh, Phil, I was actually, I'm really interested to ask you this. This is kind of controversial, but uh, the musical Hamilton as a sort of piece of art that taps into American cultural traditions and memory. 
your thoughts, overrated or underrated? Well, it's kind of the opposite of the Cats trailer where it's so supremely highly rated that you can't really say that it's underrated. I have to admit, haven't seen it. The tickets have always wow. been too expensive. Man. I haven't I'm seen sorry. it uh, Listen to the I soundtrack. I have, I've I have listened, listened to, to some listened of the soundtrack. soundtrack. I haven't seen it either. <laughs> I think it's a cool idea. I, yeah. I Always happy to see engagement with American history. Right. Interesting to see the ways in which it's been sort of made a contemporary thing. Right. There are, of course, all kinds of things that you could probably say about how it depicts race relations in America. Sure. And strangely doesn't depict them because so few of the actual characters depicted are themselves people of color. So that's that's a sort of strange thing right. to grapple with. But you can sort of tell that it's making trying to make a statement about the contributions of all kinds of people to the American founding in particular. And that's, I think, at least on that level, that's something that William Carlos Williams would probably approve. So one more T.S. Eliot thing, the wasteland, overrated or underrated, would you say? Yeah, I mean, that's probably underrated. Okay. There you go. <laughs> I mean, Even though. It's, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's, it's hard to think of any other single poem that changed so much, that meant so much to people at the time, that just defined, really, single-handedly, how people would write and how people would think for so long. For all that I say about William Carlos Williams and others. You're sort of critical of, yeah. Yeah, being critical of, yeah. of Eliot. But really, the, the only criticism you can have of Eliot is that he was too brilliant and <laughs> too influential and, and just single-handedly pushed things in a certain direction. <laughs> I am, I'm not worthy of criticizing the wasteland at the end of the day. And, and I don't think I would want to. I don't think most of us, yeah. Yeah, no, really. Well, Phil, thanks so much for being here. Great conversation. Oh, thank you for um, having me. We appreciate you writing the piece and, and talking with you about it. If you'd like to read Phil's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. You can also listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, and Ricochet. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. 